if you're not careful, and this is what happened to me, I feel like I looked up one day and I was doing a ton, a huge variety of projects. This type of music video, country, to pop, to rock, to branded content, to a documentary, to a whatever, right? Like there wasn't anything cohesive to it. Mm -hmm. It was just me trying to make as much stuff and make it as good as possible. And so that's kind of like building a horizontal portfolio, which early on is super important. But I've learned now that it's more about depth. It's finding that niche and going, hey, I did two, three, four, five of these things that share in the same sort of similarities. That's the point in time in which people go, oh, wow, that dude or that girl is really, really gifted at this type of storytelling. And I think you can't really do that until you find a little bit of who you are and where you go, dang it, that's what I love to do. Welcome to the Golden Hour Podcast, brought to you by Polar Pro. I'm your host, Dave Mays, and today we speak with Matthew Underwood. Matthew is a filmmaker who's directed music videos, commercials, and short films, as well as a feature-length documentary. I've known Matthew for about 10 years, and we actually started our careers in video production together back when the DSLR revolution was happening in 2008-2009. I think if you're somebody who's an aspiring filmmaker, director, who wants to know how to get started in the industry, how to start doing music videos, how to start doing commercial work, this interview is going to be perfect for you. Before we get started with my interview with Matthew, I want to just remind you guys to subscribe to the Polar Pro YouTube channel. That's where we're posting all the highlights from all the interviews on the Golden Hour show. So go over to Polar Pro's YouTube channel and subscribe. Without any further ado, let's get to my awesome interview with my awesome friend, awesome Matthew Underwood. It's kind of crazy because I was literally a teenager when we met for the first time. I was, I think, 17 or 18. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started out shooting weddings with our friend Jeffrey Holland. Let's talk about that. So, oh, man. <laughs> tell me about like your beginning as a filmmaker and, and the whole wedding industry. And we can obviously riff on that because we were both a part of it together. <laughs> yeah. Well, the funniest part of it, too, is being here in L.A. and yeah. other directors who are in our age range. Uh-huh. There are so many who have started in weddings. Oh, it was like the go- it was such an amazing time back in, what, 2009, 2008, when the 5D Mark II came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, But you were doing it before the 5D II. You were using a lettuce rig with like a Sony Dude. camcorder. I've seen pictures of you with like this bazooka gun camera. I actually started right when Jeffrey sold that. And bought the 5D. So I kind of started straight into DSLRs. And you and I both bought the 7D, the Canon 7D when that came out. But I mean, what was that like starting out with weddings? And I mean, I say, what was it like? I was there with you. So yeah, totally. <laughs> I remember. You know what it was but- <laughs> like. I, I actually, looking back, I appreciate a lot of it, even though I... Dear God, do not want to shoot anything <laughs> remotely similar yeah. now. Uh, but Are you I think, jaded about weddings a I'm, little bit? I'm not too jaded. Not as, like when you go to a friend's wedding, you're fine, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm totally fine. It's more of the idea of like, I think I just got it out of my system. Yeah. Like I did so much of that that I'm like, no, to go. <laughs> I did more than you. You did. And I kept I feel going like, like five years after you stopped. <laughs> I know. That's impressive. Because <laughs> I yeah. was done. What were you saying? <laughs> no, um, it, was, it, was a great, it was a great way to learn. Um, I feel like because of the whole... It's a mixture, especially being a director. Mm-hmm. The storytelling side is great because you have the same context going into every single weekend, right? Yeah. You know the format of most weddings, mm-hmm. especially once you've done a few. Yeah. Um, and so to make it interesting or to find angles that you can exploit that are not necessarily dramatic, but mm-hmm. add some sort of arc to it, 
that is something that you get to kind of every single week pick apart something different. Yeah. Um, and then you're working on in a wedding company. You're on all sides of it. You're shooting. You're helping facilitate slash direct. Mm. You are working with the bride and the bride's mom. So there's the client relationship mm. side. Editing, and obviously. Editing, yeah. So much of the storytelling on weddings came from editing and yeah. teaching us how Make to be. Cliche. Ben <laughs> um, Rector. <laughs> The soundtrack of our lives. Do you remember uh, we had a bride once who requested that we use a Nick Lachey song in the video? I don't know if I you shot that this. one with us, but I remember Jeffrey was like, uh, we can't use that. It's not copyright free. And she's like, no, I really want this Nick Lachey song. It's like, okay. And the music just gave a tone to the video that oh, was just man. so bad. It's so like bad. so 90s. <laughs> Um, I think for me, I it did ruin weddings because even when I go to like a friend's wedding, I kind of have like PTSD a little bit. It's like, oh, ah! totally. <laughs> oh, there's a wedding planner. They're gonna come yell at me or like, <laughs> oh, the the first dance is happening. Oh wait, I can yeah. just actually sit here and watch it. <laughs> uh, there was a story that I want to bring up, and it's uh, I think it's past enough time, and I don't think anybody will know the context of it. But uh, there was a story about when uh, Jeffrey lost some footage i knew you're gonna bring this yeah. up. <laughs> so, let's talk about that Oof. so uh there was a it was a jewish wedding i believe mm-hmm. so jewish weddings are a blast by the way i think those are jewish and catholic weddings were always my favorite they were just so loud exciting fun people yeah and uh the the family aspect of those cultures like it's just so amazing oh, characters it, they, yeah it's like a it's like a seinfeld tv show or something when you go to jewish wedding which is really entertaining obviously um, but yeah, like what, tell me about what happened again, <laughs> man. It's been so long, but I do remember bits and pieces cause it feels kind of traumatic to remember <laughs> back to it. Um, I remember there was something, something got lost. Yeah. I don't know if tapes. it was, yeah, I, I was going to say I, it felt like it was pre five D. I don't remember. TV tapes. Yeah. Um, yeah, something happened and I want to say it had something to do with a toast. Uh-huh. And that um, I think something went out on a camera at that point in time. And we had, it was one of those where actually I do remember this, we were double booked. And mm. so there was like a, a crew, a smaller crew shooting one and a smaller crew yeah. shooting another. And because I don't think that, I was involved with, I was involved maybe with the other wedding. Yeah. That and day. so since we were shorthanded, we had less people kind of monitoring things that we would normally monitor. Yeah. And something went out. I think it was a battery or a tape or something. Yeah. And it may have honestly just been on an audio recorder or it could have mm-hmm. been on the, the camera itself. But I remember it was part of one of the toasts. Yeah. And so that moment of realizing it and then like we had to go like sit down at the family's house and talk oh. with them. And like it, you know, they were obviously frustrated and yet they understood there's nothing they could do. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the dad wanted to like really impress upon these young yeah. early twenties <laughs> entrepreneurs that they had dropped the ball. So yeah, yeah he, uh, it was not a pleasant experience. I think if I, now that you're saying all that, I, I'm remembering the story. Didn't he have, maybe he, he read a toast and you didn't record the audio, but he just reread it because yes. he had it written down. Correct. And Jeffrey ended up using it like... Like a VO. Like a voiceover, yeah. yeah. And sorry, Jeffrey, if we're calling you out too much <laughs> and people hopefully don't look you up and sue you or something. We were, we were young children at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so tell me about that process uh, going from weddings to commercial work. Um, I do remember it. Like we were living together during that time. Matt was my roommate for couple years like two years or something and then you went to live with another guy but then i got chris instead of you which was a blast but uh uh (laughs) yeah so that's the other thing too is like matt and i not only worked together but we actually lived together uh which was pretty awesome (laughs) 
<laughs> talking about blasts from the past right now. I know. Um, um, uh, but yeah, so tell me about the story of um, of the company that you worked with, uh, with the guy that we know that I'm talking about. But, do, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it, tell me about that and how yeah. you kind of started getting into production work. The transition was, I always knew that I wanted to do more than weddings. Mm. Like weddings was a great doorway into playing with cameras and software and Mm -hmm. and jeffrey was incredible person to learn from you know this as much as i do he taught both of us really from the beginning yeah the technical side was phenomenal and even the storytelling side he had a great eye for kind of that whole thing Mm -hmm. um and so yeah once the itch was really there i was trying to figure out ways of how do i grow out of what i'm doing and so obviously i kept shooting weddings like we were still working together throughout this but i hard to pass up 500 bucks for a day's worth of work totally (laughs) So yeah, I ended up meeting a dude who had a like creative agency that was mm. based in photography and web design at the time. Um, and again, this is like midst of the DSLR revolution. Mm. So that's what it was. It was a couple of years worth of like getting my hands dirty mm-hmm. and applying all the principles I'd learned on all these clients that he had. Yeah. And they were super small shoots. It's like, you know, people who are like, here's two grand to go do this corporate mm-hmm. you know, what would now be kind of like a corporate meets branded content sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, it was all new for us. Super new. And I think even in the culture of like media and the internet, it was all fresh and new. Very new. Anyways. Yeah. You were shooting on the 7D, I think, back then, yeah. with a slider on your shoulder, like yep. a shoulder rake. I remember that. Yeah, it's hilarious. You had, you had your camera on a slider with like hand grips, yep. and that was what you were using. And it, that way you could set it down on the ground and do a little dolly shot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Super high tech. <laughs> a dolly shot that's this long. Yeah, it's always exactly. the best. Like, you can always tell when it's a slider shot because it, it the moves shot is like two seconds much. long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. But um, I remember the first time that I was like super impressed by uh by something that you were doing was when you rented a 7d with a pl mount on it (laughs) and you put like a red pl lens on it which now that i've learned like those red lenses apparently are just known for being terrible lenses (laughs) but it was still cool to have like a pl lens on a 7d i mean that was so revolutionary so fun it was a step in the cinematic direction right that's what we were always trying to do and that that was kind of the initial craze with the dslrs is like you could get a cinematic image Mm -hmm. versus we had been with these handy cam shoulder rig that were nothing close to that so i think that was that was a big part of and it's still a part of the culture but less so now Mm -hmm. gear is so much more accessible great gear is accessible yeah and when we were starting to get your hands on a pl lens was like a really big deal because those things were only on like true sets at that Mm -hmm. point in time um, and I happen to have a director friend who um, had that 70 yeah. PL rig, and he was a couple years ahead. I have actually been repped by him. Um, What's his name? TK. McKamey. Yeah, t- that's what I yeah. thought you were talking about. Yeah, so yeah, and he does like music video stuff yeah. and has been for a long time now. But that was the other thing is I, I got in the door at this small production company and started to try and learn. Yeah. Uh, but then I also got on some actual sets. Mm-hmm. Um, TK actually was one of them uh, at the time. Uh, his producer was my roommate before you lived at the house. And so he had me come PA on a couple shoots that were like, yeah, Edwards. And uh, I PA'd on a couple shoots for like 50 bucks for like a 12 hour plus day because they were music videos. So it always go long. It was brutal, but I loved it. Like I, that was my first time seeing it as Mm -hmm. a larger scale production. Yeah. Uh, And so I think that's where like I started to see 
some sort of shape to what mm. it could become to direct and to be around another director. And I cut some stuff for him, and I just was trying to like immerse myself in, okay, what, what does it look like to be in this? And then yeah. apply that to this little baby creative agency production company I was at. What are some things that you learned back then? I just, again, because we were freaking roommates, like I feel so goofy interviewing you because I have so much context of your life. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm good friends with your wife, and your wife's good friends with my wife, and so like we really are good friends. So I do know where this is headed. But I know there were some things that happened, uh, projects that got canceled, things that you didn't get paid for that were months of work, you know, uh, five figures of money that you weren't paid like mm-hmm. things like that that happened in your career during that time yeah what did you learn from that and how have you taken those situations where sure i'll do x for x dollars and then you don't you do it but then it doesn't pan out or like what are some things that you learned yeah. about those things i have ptsd that'd be the first. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um yeah i've definitely learned because I did music, you know this. I did yeah. music. I played music before doing film work. Mm-hmm. And I kind Very of... Very talented guitar I, player. I kept... Honestly, I balanced them for a while before realizing that I wanted to do storytelling, ultimately. Um, but, yeah, I, I would say the biggest thing is that it was a crash course in the industry. And I, mm. and I think it's really important. Everyone needs to go through their version of that. Mm. And I think people are going to go through it differently depending on the day and age that you're in and the type of production that you get introduced to. Like there's, Mm -hmm. there's guys that I've worked with, like who would like intern at legit production companies. And I was repped as directors there Yeah, and it kind of ushered them into the door of a larger scale and scope Mm -hmm. than like what you and I were ushered into. So I think some of the growing pains were based on the fact that like we were, we were not in the world of real production yet, but Mm -hmm. we were like learning how to craft good work in the meantime. Yeah, And so getting from that point A to point B was there was mm-hmm. no clear path. Yeah. And that leads you into a spot where you're going to run into these things. Because yeah. even now, doing commercials professionally, mm-hmm. it's still a total cluster sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's just like it, you have the a world where things are happening so quickly. Like literally today, I had a conference call with an agency yeah. that I've been trying to get scheduled for the past two weeks. Mm. And the project is now like two and a half weeks away. Jeez, man. And they're yeah. like, cool, we need a treatment by Monday. Oh, and wow. we want to award in the middle of next week. And it's like, wow, that doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. But I have learned that the typically the more, the smaller the company, mm-hmm. the more likely that is. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not to say that bigger companies are always going to be buttoned up. Because they're not. Because mm-hmm. they're juggling a ton of jobs. Yeah. But they're familiar with the scope and scale and they understand how to get in and like sure. turn key and make it work. When we were making that transition, I think running into a lot of those scenarios was that it was people who were inexperienced. Mm-hmm. They and, were giving you a lot of false hope, false promises. Mm-hmm. We'll pay you X amount if you do this. And it just didn't happen. Right. Like, do you find that in the industry, there's just a lot of hot air, like people just kind of blowing smoke up your butt? Yeah. And sometimes it's, it's well-intentioned. And sometimes it's malicious, right? There's mm-hmm. both. I've heard of both scenarios. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've been part of both, but it's been more of the well-intentioned kind mm-hmm. and people just biting off more than they can chew. How can a just somebody who's starting out like di- discern or at, what's the word ascertain totally. what is bullcrap and what is truth? Like, it's a great question. Hey, I'd like to hire you to do this thing, uh, but I'm not going to pay you. But uh, if the Kickstarter gets funded, I will. You know, <laughs> yeah, totally. or like. Uh, you can do this and put it on your reel or <laughs> just crap like that. Like, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic question and it's one that doesn't ever go away. Mm-hmm. I think it's about learning. You said it really well. Like, how do you discern that? It's about learning to navigate it because mm-hmm. 
there's directors that I talk to now who are literally on multi-million dollar shoots and they're still trying to figure out their own passion projects because mm. they can't get in the door to do another type of work that they'd like to do yeah. until they've done it. Yeah. Right. Like that's the whole, you hear people talk about mm. like, Oh, I, I, it's so hard coming out of college. I can't get a job because I don't have experience. Well, the exact same thing is true in our industry. Yeah. If you want to do a sports commercial, you're not going to get hired until you've done something that looks like a sports commercial. So we actually interviewed a guy named Chris Burkhardt. He's a really famous photographer, actually, Instagrammer, and just travels the world. He would hate that I called him an Instagrammer. Just <laughs> yeah, now. totally. Um, but he talks about that and how he was starting out, um, and he would use his own money. Of course, it's way cheaper to do this as a photographer, not a filmmaker. Totally. But he wanted to do car photography, so he he would just like go up to car guys and be like, Hey, I'll do a free shoot for you. Mm-hmm. Bring lights, hire people, like spend a thousand bucks and do a, a shoot. And then he does that again the next week and again the next week. And then now over a month or two months, you have six amazing car portfolios that you yeah. can put together. And now you're a car guy or whatever. And that's what I learned when I was in Nashville as a freelancer, I was doing, I figured out that this 3d kind of VHS vintage look was something that I could do fairly easily fairly well so i just was like okay i'll just be that guy and it started to kind of work and it mm-hmm. started to happen what happened for you when you decided okay i'm gonna hone in on one style or one type of tone or piece or like what is that about you that you love what was something that you've learned and that you've kind of honed in on for you because you're talking about doing things for free doing passion projects i know you've done a lot of passion projects yeah and uh well <sighs> It's interesting. I'll tie it into our what our topic we were just saying too about like I think you're going to run into BS and you're also going to mm-hmm. need to do passion projects and you're going to be finding out more about yourself and what you enjoy along the way. Mm-hmm. So I'd say the number one thing in that whole conversation is build a relationship and try and actually discern that other person and mm-hmm. are they legit? Are they actually being yeah. honest with you? And I know that's easier said than done, but if you don't rush into things, yeah. that usually is, that's what I've learned is the most meaningful relationships that I have now in production mm-hmm. formed over a long period of time. And a lot yeah. of times it was literally like hanging out and getting coffee. Yeah. And there are multiple people where it's like, we did that for two years off and on mm-hmm. and we would try and occasionally work together. And then eventually you start working together Mm-hmm. And then you look up and you're like, man, we've done a bunch of projects together. Yeah. And so it happened organically. So I think that's mm-hmm. that's a big part of it is you're going to have opportunities that come up where you can't fully vet them. And mm-hmm. hopefully you can apply your people skills to like yeah. read the other people. But sometimes you're going to read wrong. Yeah. But in any chance that you can, building those relationships, I think, is the key way outside of then once you get into a project and you start seeing red flags yeah. just in terms of like oh from a production standpoint that's not enough time or whatever those things are that's that's what, a big part of it what happens when you're you're day one into production and you see those red flags and you're like oh crap you, hopefully you see them before day one in production that's the key yeah. i think <laughs> is yeah trying to see them as early yeah. as possible and communicating that with a client because mm-hmm. at the end of the day they want a really good mm-hmm. piece they may not want something as artistic or well-crafted as what you have in your head. Yeah. You have to always remember that. But it's your job as the director at that point in time to speak into it and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we're, we're pushing up against an envelope and we may not have enough prep time or whatever mm-hmm. it is at that point. So You, set, you touched on something that made me think of a, a question I want to ask you, and that is the, the kind of balance of pleasing the client and giving them what they want and being an artist and being a director and, and a mm. filmmaker. So let's just give you a hypothetical yeah. situation here. Coca-Cola wants to hire you to do an ad. They want you to sell Coke and make it look good. Mm-hmm. And you have this beautiful 
ad of uh, Kardashian who's there with like a bunch of rebels who are uh, you know holding signs and saying like <laughs> pretty sure know. that was Pepsi but yeah <laughs> <laughs> so they come to you with that idea and what do you like what do you do? Uh, that's probably not the best example but like how do you balance being an artist mm-hmm. and pleasing the client especially when the client literally has like a script already kind of in mind yeah and commercials they they will most of the time mm. um and I, it's something that I constantly navigate. It's like a tension back and forth. Because on, on one hand, you're there for one reason, and that's to fulfill that client's needs. That's yeah. why they're hiring you. Yeah. Um, if you can do it in a way that is deftly crafted and mm-hmm. like you're really applying your expertise to, then that's great. And yeah. I think the more established you get, yeah. and that's with any industry, but especially as a director... The more established you get, the more people are going to call you to do what you do. And the more they trust you. Yeah. You mentioned, like, the whole, um, you know, finding your niche. Mm-hmm. And that's I think that's the key is yeah. at the end of the day, you've got to find something you enjoy that you're naturally good at yeah. and go for it and build that body of work like the dude with the car photography, right? right? Like, that's what you do. And then eventually you get called to do more of that and you get paid and that can grow. Mm-hmm. The strategy comes into navigating that and saying, okay how do I continue to shape this to be more like what I want? Mm -hmm. Or I realize now that I enjoy this, but not as much as I enjoy narrative commercials. Right. Mm. So that's what you got to do is you got to be strategic along the way and try and constantly push the needle in that direction. Yeah. And so when it comes to a specific project and the artistry of it, I think it's the, for me, a lot of it is trying to identify if it has what I would consider the qualities to be successful. Mm -hmm. And when I say successful, I mean like in terms of being something that I want to put my name on. Mm-hmm. I'll still do work if I don't want to put my name on it, right? Because so it pays the bills, man. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and anyone who tries to make this into some sort of be a starving artist thing, mm-hmm. I think you're missing the point of the fact that you like, you're mm-hmm. building a life and a career. And yeah. it's a career that's full of people who are in their 50s and 60s. Yeah. And they're not going to want to like stand by everything they've ever done their entire lives. Yeah. There's plenty of things we don't know. Even the David ventures of the world did. Right. So, um, I try and always keep that in context, but I look for those qualities and say, okay, like here's for instance, here's a project that I'm working on right now. The creative is really cool and it's kind of wide open because Mm -hmm. the brand is wanting to do something unique Mm -hmm. and they didn't have like a super strong, uh, idea right no formal script written no storyboards yeah. or anything um and we're not working with an agency so we are actually kind of crafting the creative well that's nice. a that's a great scenario yeah it comes with its own issues right like maybe the budget on that project's not as good as an agency budget would be mm-hmm. but that's one of those where i look at everything and i try and weigh the factors and go like okay i see this has the ability to be really unique and check mm-hmm. all those boxes that i'm wanting um and so I'm going to really fight for that project because I see the potential in it. And I may not go to bat as hard on certain things creatively on a project where I can see the writings on the wall that like, oh, I'm not going to want to show this to anybody, but I'm going to happily put it in my bank account. Yeah. So so I think that's discerning those two things should should lead you in Mm -hmm. making those decisions over because it's not worth getting stressed out over a project that's never going to be what you want it to be. Yeah, exactly. So let's go back to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you eventually went from that company and uh, and doing your own thing there to 
uh, being repped by a uh, production company that repped other directors. Mm-hmm. And now you're, I think you're still with another company. Is it Tail Light? Are mm-hmm. you still with them uh, here in LA? Um, and you fly back and forth. Tell me about the process of being repped by a company. What has your experience been like? Do you recommend it to directors who are up and coming? Should they go to a production company? Uh, basically, if you're not aware of this like industry what one way to get work is is to work for a production company and they have all these contacts with music labels and you know pepsi and coke and whatever and then pepsi comes to this production company and says hey we need a director to direct this and then that guy the production company says all right list of 30 directors make a treatment (laughs) which by the way a treatment is essentially just like a pitch Mm -hmm. uh for an idea and when you started out, I mean, you told me you were writing like a treatment every week. Yep. And, uh, you know, as far as the per- percentage that you landed versus the treatments that you made, were, it was very low. And oh, yeah. it's continuing to, it's just over time you get more and more of that. Tell me about that whole process. Yeah. What's it like? Tell me about treatments, all that kind of stuff. It's a weird world. Um, <laughs> and it's, I'm and, not in it at and, all anymore. And I'm still very much rising up and trying to learn and navigate that whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's been, that was the motivation to move to Los Angeles for me was I felt like I, I'm repped in Nashville still. I'm repped in Atlanta. So I'm doing work in those two places regularly. Cool. And the it's a very regional sort of work that comes into there. So I knew I wanted to grow and that's why the move out here was to learn and navigate, okay, what are the next steps as a director? And mm-hmm. a lot of that has been picking the brain of other directors yeah. who are further along that path than I am. Um, so when it comes to how that works with production companies, yeah, I started out, you're always going to start out as the baby on the roster at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And it's brutal. There's no way around it. Because <laughs> you're going to now, like, you went from this world of, like, you know, navigating however you're getting your work to, like, oh, this is cool. I'm going to work with this company. And they're going to bring me projects. And it's now going to be with real producers and real budgets. And mm-hmm. I'm going to learn the ropes of that. Super valuable. And I highly endorse it. Yeah. Um, but it's going to come with the territory of now you're like pitching against all these other directors and Mm -hmm. most of them have probably been there longer than you at some point in time. (laughs) So, um, and some of them may just be aesthetically doing something that's more in line with what a client wants or what is current. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're always going up against certain things and that part can be discouraging. There's Mm -hmm. even now, you know, however many years into this thing, it still feels that way when you lose projects where you're like, Oh man, I lost it to that guy. Really? Yeah. You know, and again, it's like, it gets even weirder when these other directors become your friends. Yeah. Because then you're like, getting jobs and you're not. Yeah, totally. Or and vice versa. How do you not play the comparison game? But I do think it's invaluable to go the production company route at some point in time because it's it's changing, I would say. Mic a bit. I would say the model's changing a little bit in terms of the industry. Um, it's not as production company heavy as it used to be. It okay. used to be very specific where like, Agencies come to production companies and they do what's called triple bidding, which is three directors, one from each production company. Wow. And this is like high level jobs and you're bidding against, you know who you're bidding so let's against? let's say a Taylor Swift music video, right? Yeah, music videos are less that way. Okay. Commercials are for sure triple bidding. Okay, so Lexus ad, mm-hmm. million dollar ad. Right. This is what they do. So they find three production companies. Each production company has a list of 50 directors or whatever. Mm-hmm. They... I'll pitch it. Then they pick three. Then they narrow that down to three. No. So like the agency would actually prob or the rep who's working on the commercial would probably say, I have three directors in mind and they're yeah. at these three companies. Gotcha. 
and I want them specifically to pitch on this. And these treatments and on this level, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You're putting a week of time sometimes into these pitches. And yeah. you don't get paid for them, right? Like, you yeah. don't get well, paid if you win the job. A lot of people don't know this, but, like, you spend days, maybe even weeks on a treatment, and you're not getting paid for that. No. You're literally just pitching an idea that hopefully will get picked up. But if you're working on a million dollar budget, I mean that's what thirty grand that you're making, right, or whatever. Well, and it or depends more. on the project, right? Because if it's if it's union and you're in the DGA, then you're getting day rates. And some of those day rates are insane. Okay, so cool. It, it it's just the, depends. The scale works, yeah. It just but you keep backing that out, and once you're underneath the higher level and you're in more the middle to low level, mm-hmm. they aren't always triple bidding. So you might be going against ten other directors, right? You have no yeah. idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's valuable for one because you need to learn the ropes. Mm-hmm. of how an agency works and how they pitch how if you want to do music videos how labels are looking for treatments mm-hmm. some of the most helpful things i've learned is from other directors and seeing their treatments and learning how they're winning jobs and like how to sell yourself within that yeah um because that whether you're at a production company or not you're gonna have to do that mm-hmm. you have to learn how to sell yourself and yeah. you have to learn what you're good at and if you're going up against somebody who's really really great at narrative work then and you're not, then you better not be pitching an idea or a direction that mm. they're going to pitch and win. Yeah. Because they're going to win it every time over you. Yeah. You got to learn your strengths and pitch to that. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that's been a big part of it for me is learning to learning the ropes and learning from people who are further along than you, mm-hmm. who it's, if they're not competition, then they have no issue sitting down with you and being like, yeah, yeah, this is how, like, I've totally been in your shoes. I've had so many directors say that, like, oh, I know exactly where you're at. Yeah. And they've been gracious enough to walk me through what that process mm-hmm. looked like for them. And everyone's is different. And it takes a little bit of serendipity for pretty much everybody. At yeah. some point in time, a client's going to have to bite. And they're going to have mm-hmm. to say yes to an idea yeah. or you're going to have to get roped into a project that you have a weird connection with somehow. Yeah. Um, and that's your chance and you need to execute and you need to do it well. Tell me about what it's like when you land that job for you, Matt Underwood or Matthew Underwood. You land the job, say you've got $50,000 to work with. It's a small commercial mm-hmm. for a product. What's your first step? What do you do? Who do you hire? Where do you go from there? Yeah. Do, you, do you script it? Do you find actors? How do you how do you find the actors? Just give me the whole in a nutshell. Yeah. What do you do? I mean, at this point in time, you're likely if you're with a production company, they probably have a producer already attached to the job when you're pitching to help mm-hmm. you build the budget. And what is a producer? So they are the your logistical right hand. Gotcha. Right. So. And that's different than an executive producer, who right. typically just provides the funds. Is that right? Or in this case, an executive producer would be whoever owns the production company, okay. right? So they are the the source of everything. They're the CEO. Yeah, exactly. So they may or may not even touch the project. Gotcha. Um, so but they you, probably have the relationship that brought the project in. But you and the producer begin working the, the details. Mm-hmm. So when you pitch on a treatment, you likely already are pitching a budget with it. Mm-hmm. Even if the agency or label or whoever has said, hey, here's we've got 50 grand. Yeah. You still need to pitch a, a budget, right, with okay. a producer that shows how you're going to spend that money. Down to and, the dollar. Right. And that it's possible. Um, and then you start to execute that. And what and, is what is the typical director's rate? Uh, it just depends. That's where we were saying, like, if, on the large-scale stuff in your union, you're getting day rates. Okay. And some of those could be 20, 25 grand a day, Holy right? Crap. Yeah. But those are, like, $5 million Sure. Campaigns. Um, In music video world, it's been pretty common that like 10% of a music video budget is your rate. And I I kind of feel that stays true for a lot of smaller commercials. 50 Mm -hmm. grand, you might make five grand as a director. Yeah. Um, I think that's pretty accurate. It just, you know, depending on the company and the way they structure it, 
there's ebb and flow to every project. And do they tell you you're making 10% or do you decide that when you're budgeting? Uh, typically, if you work with a production company, you guys will cover it together and they'll say, hey, here's the budget we're working on. Here's where you're at. Are yeah. you okay with this? Okay. Are you not? Gotcha. But typically, it, it hovers that around that spot. That prevents you from taking 50% of the budget yeah. and doing a, a shoestring budget shoot. Exactly. Well, that's why agencies... <laughs> Which I've done before, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's done them. And, and, and that's why agencies want to see those budgets, right? They want to know yeah. if you're... It, not only is your idea possible, but what do your numbers look like? And make yeah. sure you're not padding the budget where you shouldn't be. Yeah. So, mm. okay. So, you get the producer. You, you do your budget through and through. You hire your crew. Mm-hmm. Who are some of your essential crew people that you always have to have yeah there's a lot of extras on big big sec- sets um what do you where do you go from there yeah you're looking at department heads right mm-hmm. so if your producer is your right hand i always would then say your dp is your left hand director of photography cinematographer yeah. mm-hmm. and they and they're going to typically have their own recommendations for crew guys they want right gotcha. art director would be another huge one right anything over production design bringing in props um that whole world and is, at what budget massive. do you start looking into art directors? Even with a $50,000 budget, you would mm-hmm. oh, yeah. you can afford to do that? Yeah, and, and on a smaller project, a lot of times an art director might be... Their job might be to work with what's already pre-existing, depending... Like, say we're shooting in someone's house. Okay. Um, help us... If we're trying to achieve a certain look, it may be moving things around in that person's house. Obviously... You're always a guest, right? So you're taking pictures. You need someone who's going to take pictures of that house and put everything back. And, yeah. um, or they may be bringing in specific props. I've done music videos that are you know, super art heavy, but they're small budget. So cool. you're choosing to put less money into the gear and the camera, and you're saying, no, it's more about the location and the art. Yeah, um, which can sometimes will often be more important, anyways. Yeah, exactly. That's so much value comes from that, mm-hmm. especially now that gear is so much more accessible and affordable. And I know that you've worked with a handful of DPs over the years, but there's always some that you just go to and you cling to, and that you're friends with. Mm-hmm. Do you find that a DP is almost like your best friend on set in a way? Totally. Yeah. As a director. Yeah, because I think um, you kind of have to have the same brain in a way. Yeah, and there different directors approach things differently. I'm still very visual, and I, you know, we talked about weddings, right? I yeah. was always hands on. I was, and even after weddings and small I mean, you're production, a good, you're a great shooter yourself. I mean, in a way, you could be a DP if you wanted to, right? And that's so. I think when you have that sort of approach, yeah. then you definitely are very collaborative with. Mm-hmm. DPs. I've DP friends who talk to me about huge directors they've worked with that are not that way, that didn't necessarily grow up through the wedding industry or whatever, yeah, right? Yeah. And they're like, they're kind of detached from the whole like visual side of like, they're more worried about act- actor performances or yeah. whatever it is. Um, so I think for me, it's almost something that I have to protect where I don't get too invested in the visuals. Yeah. That I go, no, no, no. Everything else it. is super important as well. Yeah. Every, and again, everyone's going to have their strengths as to what they lean into. Yeah. So, so moving on from department heads, the DP himself may have an AC or gaffer that he uses. Yep. So they come with the DP. You give him a budget for his camera package and stuff, mm-hmm. and he starts figuring out, okay, I've only got five grand, so I'm probably just going to use a 5D. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, um, who else do you hire? How do you find actors, things like that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, essentially, once you have your department heads in, they're going to send their recommendations to the crew for the producer. Mm-hmm. And then the producer will negotiate rates and all that stuff. You'll ideally have someone to like a production manager who is essentially like the underneath the producer to handle all the little details. So what they'll do is they'll reach out to casting agencies and gotcha. say, hey, here's what the director's told us about the project that they're looking for. The client wants 
three people of this ethnicity and this age range and then the so this is a place where you can be racist and sexist and <laughs> we are looking exclusively for you yeah. <laughs> we're looking for black men who are fat <laughs> yeah exactly that's like you have an ask every time and the, and the casting agency goes cool here's who we have that's yeah. available on those dates and in your uh, budget range and i heard a podcast on this american life with a casting director and I think she said that like she said she's trying to be inclusive and to be like fair but it's like I need a white guy yeah. like like I need it to and it has to be in those boxes obviously like the any any sense of inclusivity or diversity is is more in the creative side right because yeah. once someone hands you a script you're just supposed to execute it yeah exactly. so it's not up to you what the talent ethnicity is or yeah. anything of that there's nature. nothing racist about that it's no you're, like, you're executing yeah. at that point it's it's more about yeah on that end it's more about brands and clients and agencies thinking that through on the front end and saying yeah. no, no no we want to be out in front of that which more people are obviously yeah. now in 2019 yeah um but yeah, so the that whole process too runs everything is at the end of the day is going to run through you as the director and mm-hmm. your and your producer, and then you're also going to be back and forth with the client and the agency, right? So yeah. you're going to pull what's called your selects, your top three, your top five, mm-hmm. or top ten talent. You're going to say, hey, here's who we like, and you're going to pass that along, and hopefully the agency or client agrees with you. Cool, and then. And then day of, you're you're there. Everybody's there. They all show up. You're the boss man in a way. What's that like when when the morning happens? It's usually four or five in the morning, and the crew's there. What are some of the things that you say to kind of get people like on board? Mm-hmm. Because you're the leader of the, you're the captain of the ship. Yeah, and and honestly, if you haven't pulled a great team in around you, it's going to be terrifying. Mm-hmm. If you've got a really good team, usually there's the like like you've played sports pregame butterflies, mm-hmm. but they're more exciting, I think, than anything else. Yeah, as long as you don't feel like you're walking into something you can't handle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think having an assistant director, if you can, is massively important because they're going to be the ones that help you line out a schedule for your shoot and make mm-hmm. sure that you've blocked everything accordingly and they're that way you're not looking at your watch at you saying like all right let's go yeah. we have 30 minutes yeah <laughs> yeah so you're not looking at your own watch you can be involved in the performances at that point in time and ad's going you should be a couple shots ahead of where you are yeah and a great ad is really really good at doing that and they're also the one who's being a jerk. <laughs> who, yeah who can light a fire underneath everybody else yeah so for me personally and now you're not the bad guy right yeah. yeah and that's a big part of it right is like client relationship agency relationship you, as a director you are feeling a ton of opinions all the time so an ad helps keep you on schedule but like a producer or an ep on set might end up being your buffer to the agency or to the client mm-hmm. so that you're not getting terrible ideas in your ear all day yeah and you have to entertain some of those ideas like i have buddies who always joke about the nightmares of working with agencies where there's tons of opinions coming in and everyone yeah. feels like they need to share their opinions yeah. because they're in the room yeah. and they end up arguing over like somebody's belt buckle and you lose two hours on a day because of that <laughs> like stuff like that happens all the time yeah and that's where for me it's more about like how personally how collaborative can i be early on in the process how strongly can i sell the vision how detailed Mm -hmm. can my treatment be Mm -hmm. to where i build that trust and that way on set on the day you're not as in the weeds on those little things and i've also learned personally give the client something little because if they're involved in something little they're not going to be breathing down your neck on the other 99 percent smart so by all means what's an example of that 
something uh, like little... art direction on set, right? Okay. If they're like worried about a color or a prop in the background, I'm always encouraging it. I'm like, yeah, maybe the art director over there can help you figure out what other options she has. <laughs> and they get them off your back. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it lets oh, yeah. you be free to do your thing. Yeah. And it lets them feel involved. Yeah, exactly. So do you give like a motivational speech? Like, no. Uh, no, not usually. I mean, I'll like, depending on the day, but usually everyone staggers in throughout the day, right? Like okay, yeah. certain crews there really early, yeah. followed by certain other people, followed by talent, followed by agent, whatever it is, right? There's an sure. order to that day. Have you ever worked with any big actors before that you recognize or that are at least B, C list Hollywood actors and stuff? Yeah, there's a guy in Nashville that I've worked with who is fantastic and I see him pop up and stuff every now and then. Um, What's it like working with a pro like that? It was incredible. Does it make your job easier? Yeah. yeah. It makes it so much easier. Um, <laughs> that was actually on a, a personal project. I did a short and he... Which short is it? If Bones. people want to look it up. Yeah, it's called Bones. He plays um, a pretty seedy character. Mm-hmm. And we we had a really great conversation about like trying to get into the head of that character. Because any good actor will tell you, you know, they're not trying to judge that character. They're yeah. trying to empathize with them. Yeah. And... Um, I just remember what separated his performance from some of the other performances was that he was always surprising mm-hmm. and in a way that felt real to me, right? Like people should be surprising you. You don't know what the other person's always going to say or do. Yeah. And so much about acting is that part of the reaction mm-hmm. and like reacting off the other actor and their performance. And I remember this was a really tense scene we were shooting and it was like super quiet on set. And I'm like one room over watching the monitor and every performance. There were a couple where I jumped because it was just like he was wow. just kind of scaring me in oh, a good wow. way. And so and that, then you say cut and he's like, all right, so how's yeah, that? <laughs> exactly. So that I can imagine what it's like being Spielberg or being somebody like that and seeing Johnny Depp in front of you or like some of these amazing actors, like, you know, when you see somebody doing what they do and that's hit, you know, for you that you were literally in it so much that you believed it mm-hmm. and you were on set, you could see the camera guy, like you yeah. knew it was all fake. I mean, I can't imagine what that's like having just an actor who knows what the heck they're doing. I can't imagine being a Steven Spielberg or a Fincher or whoever, and you're sitting there and you're like, not only do you have these actors that know what they're doing, but you're also saying, no, let's do that again. Yeah. I didn't get what I need out of that, right? Because I think it is easy to become enamored. (laughs) Especially Fincher. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I love his philosophy, though, at the end of the day, is like, I feel like actors want to act. Yeah. That's what he says, right? I didn't call you here to get it in two takes. Like, if you like to act, we should give you as much time to explore that as you want to. Yeah. Um, I think that that goes to the idea, though, of it's easy to be enamored on set. Mm. New toys can make you feel enamored. Uh, A big job can make you feel enamored. Mm. Big talent, same thing, right? Like, oh, this actor. But at the end of the day, like, you can lose yourself in that and not pay attention to the whole project and walk away going, we had X, Y, or Z that was awesome, but I didn't, like... I didn't really kill this project. Okay, so all this is great. This is this is how you do what you do when you get to your level where you actually have the opportunity to do this. But there's a lot of people out there who want to be doing this and they just simply have to pay rent, you know? Yep. They have to pay their bills. We touched on that a little bit, but how do you pay your bills when you're doing a passion project or how do you pay your bills when you land a job that you're really creatively excited about but like you said you're you're more passionate about this one opportunity because you have creative freedom but you're obviously not making as much money Mm -hmm. uh how do you balance the fact that you just simply need to make a living but not let that be so ingrained in your daily life that you don't have any time for passion projects right how do you find that balance it's hard 
Uh, I'm 30, almost 31. So I would say one of the most incredible ways I find it is my wife. She has a job. So <laughs> it's not all on my shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she's also like a massive champion of my mm. career because in an ideal world, one day when it's, you know, uh, achieving a different level of success, she may not have to work if she doesn't want to. Yeah. Um, so she's, she's in it and she understands passion projects. And so financially, if things are slow, it's really helpful to have someone who does have stability because that's the thing with this. There is the stability is not real yeah. unless you're working in a, ad agency or production company or within the context of getting a paycheck. Yeah. Um, because if you're going job to job to job, yeah. it doesn't matter what level you're at. Like you can talk to massive directors who are like, man, it's like, I haven't worked in three months. Yeah. I've heard story. I've heard interviews with DPs. It's like, yeah, I did a movie, but what are you doing next? Nothing. I'm unemployed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, That's scary. Um, and so learning a budget. <laughs> yeah, you really do. You got to put money away. I would say that's one of the most important things is obviously you're, you got to, you know, be ready for taxes. Mm -hmm. You've got to be saving, building your savings account, like mm -hmm. all those things for a handful of reasons. But one, because you just don't know what could happen on a job or yeah. I've like, I've literally been in a spot where I've got two projects that are kind of circling and landing mm -hmm. right now. Like mm -hmm. one that's flexing on dates, which is a good yeah. feeling yeah. because the past two and a half months, I pitched like 12 treatments and landed zero of them. Yeah. And I had a couple that were like, oh, you're going to get this. And then they fell through for whatever reason or the client decided not to so go forward. Man. Yeah. I can't believe that. And it's your livelihood, right? So yeah. it's even more frustrating. It's like, not only is it a cool opportunity, but it's how I'm going to pay my rent. I, I think there's something to be said of you as a person and your personality. I really think there's two different types of people. There's people who are willing to just get the job done and become rich and make a ton of money. And there's people like you and me who are more driven by the, the art of creating. Right. And like, I'm really honestly not that concerned about money. If I'm doing what I love, mm -hmm. I feel more fulfilled in that. And I, I believe that God provides enough money to live if I actually do what I feel like I'm doing and what I'm called to be doing. And if that means you start like, cause you could start a wedding business mm -hmm. and make maybe more money than you're making now. Totally. And, but you would hate it. Right. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. And that's okay. There's people, I have a friend who has a, a wedding business and he's very successful. He makes a lot of money and he loves it. Yep. So good for him. Right. Yeah. Like, and, and I think that's a, that's a big part of it that people probably don't think about and talk about enough in this industry is sustainability mm. and building a life, right? And again, we talked about like, if you want to make movies, these like men and women are oftentimes in their 40s, 50s, 60s that you're looking up to. Yeah. So it's not a young and don't, person's And don't game. look at the, some of the exceptions as comparison. As the rule, right, because, yeah. you know, we have amazing people like uh, What's-His-Face that did uh, the drum movie. Yeah, and, I know. Uh, it's Damien La La Chazelle. Land and, yeah. you know, you've got the Lego movie guys and you've yeah. got, like, I mean, those are the exception, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, and those we are, are savants. Those are guys who and girls who are like born with this natural gift that like I'm never going to achieve because they're just so freaking talented. I, I feel that way and I also don't. I also feel like it's a product of our social media culture mm. is that we've built a culture that we like to celebrate things, right? Yeah. Celebrate people and the anomalies. So it's all about how like if you're navigating social media, how can I utilize this to build a bigger platform, to get seen, to get noticed, yeah. to do X, Y, and Z? And sometimes that doesn't have anything to do with talent. No, it doesn't. I've seen I people... I tell you for, for yeah. certain. I'm in that world right now. I've seen people rise up the ranks without talent, but because yeah. they have the skills of being entrepreneurs. Uh -huh. So I think... Are you saying I don't have any talent? Thanks absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think, I think it's an important conversation because first and foremost... 
the comparison game is the single biggest detriment I think mm-hmm. that anyone in our field can partake in. How have you navigated that? There was a time where I cut social media out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still something uh, building relationships has been a big part of it. So like the directors that I admire their work, if you become friends with them, it's a lot easier when you lose a job to them to not like get depressed or down about it. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to be jealous of a friend who I'm excited that now that friend can provide for his wife and kid because Mm -hmm. he just landed this job. Yeah. So I think when you start to look at it, you know, from a longer term perspective, and build it from a sustainable standpoint. One of the things that I think people should ask themselves is like, how do I not idealize this? Mm-hmm. Like if you want to do the freelance thing, it can be a struggle Yeah, and that's okay. Right. There are ebbs and flows to that. And there are going to be seasons where you could be killing it and you have to be an entrepreneur. But if stability is more important to you, you might can still scratch the creative itch by being on staff at a production company or an ad agency or that's a good point. right. Like there's, I, I, I get frustrated when people feel like there's only one version of something. Like, yeah. to be a director is X. Yeah. It's like, no, lo, I, like, nothing is more inspiring to me than Jordan Peele. Yeah. Right? And how many, he had these dreams and desires within him. And he, if you listen to, like, his DGA talk, he talks about how, like, he kept questioning if the decisions he was making were actually going to push him further or closer towards it. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it was like, he was building a skill set. Mm-hmm. And when he was ready, he took the plunge and it paid off. Yeah. And so that's, I think, the most important thing is if you, if you know what you love, you can, you can scratch that itch through weddings, through podcasts, through, right? Like there are yeah. so many ways you can do it and you can't abandon the bigger dream. Mm-hmm. You always need to be, whether it's writing a script or funding your own short films, whatever it is, you need to be making obvious steps towards it. Mm-hmm. But hopefully you can leverage other things in your career to help build that skill set. Yeah. And part of that is just buying yourself time. Yeah. Providing for yourself. Yeah. So that if there's a window, maybe that window is five years from now when you're going to be uh, able to jump out on your own. Like mm-hmm. we have a really good friend we've talked about earlier. Who, yeah. He um, is a great DP. He works from in a very technical standpoint right now in a big company. Mm-hmm. And he's talked about wanting to jump out on his own. But at one point in time, he and his wife had complications with a pregnancy. Mm. They had two preemie kids and it like flipped their lives upside down. Yeah. And that stability saved their lives, literally. Yeah. Like they have two healthy little boys now mm-hmm. that if he had been a freelancer, I don't know what in the world he would have done. Yeah. And, and it's a gift that he was able to have that, right? Yeah. And, and we've talked about like his window may not have been what he thought it was going to be, right? Mm-hmm. He may have thought and idealized, oh, I can go out at age of 26 now and do this thing as a DP. And here we are, fast forward, you know, like six, seven years later. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. Like he might go out and do that at 40. Yeah. And it's not better or worse. Nope. So I think like our culture celebrates these young, like you said, savant sort of anomaly things. Yeah. And it's so dangerous because it gives right. us this message that's like, no, 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 we're a failure if we're not doing whatever it is. I'm a failure yeah. right now if I'm not directing whatever caliber of project or budget. And it's like, no, you talk with people who are in it and they've like, they've been through the weeds with you more, more than not. Yeah. Let's talk about, uh, the current just climate in 2019. You've been doing this. You're only 31, 30, 31, but you have been doing this for over a decade. Like myself, I started when I was 17. I know you started, how old were you when you started with Jeffrey? Like 19. Yeah. So, I mean, it's been a long time and, we both have actually, I feel like an old man almost, because like the guy that works with me right now, he's only 22 years old, 
and he started on a Canon 70D that has autofocus. So he's never like manually focused before. And he just has grown up with this YouTube culture, people like Peter McKinnon and Casey Neistat and kind of the the current trend when we were starting was Philip Bloom. It was like Vimeo staff picks. Yeah. And now I think the guys that, and girls that are starting out in the 18, 19 year old range, they're being grown up with YouTube yeah. and looking up to YouTube filmmakers and YouTubers and stuff like that. What do you think about just this current ecosystem? You said that the the production company route being repped by a company may not be what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you seeing in yeah. the trends? What are you feeling even for yourself right now in 2019? Um, I'm Yeah, I'm feeling like it's going to change. Like, I think it's inevitable. I've talked yeah. to executive producers at, like, some good production companies who feel like it's changing. Mm-hmm. So I think that at this point in time, the YouTube model is a is pretty much its own world yeah. versus a lot of what we've talked about in the commercial music yeah. video world. Not that you can't like cross over at some point in time, but at the end of the day, it's such a, a business and a business run on relationships mm-hmm. that right now the relationships funnel through a very specific system. Yeah. And that, while it's going to change, I don't, like if it were to go, it's not like it's going to go to YouTubers, if that makes sense, no, it right? Won't. Because I can the, tell you for a fact, it's yeah. not. I know a lot of guys who want to do it and mm-hmm. they can't. Right. They have three million subscribers and they're making twenty thousand dollars a month off of YouTube, but they can't freaking get a deal to do a film. Right. I mean, uh, a friend of ours. Have you met Ryan Connolly from Film Riot? Yes. He is uh, a mutual friend of Seth, mm-hmm. and we know for Seth, obviously. And, like, he's an amazingly talented filmmaker, but he's a YouTuber. And production companies see him as a YouTuber. And I hope to get him on this podcast and ask him, like, exactly what that struggle has been for him. I can't imagine going from, like, you go into a meeting with older people who are trying to land a deal for a film or for a commercial. And they just see you as a YouTuber. Mm -hmm. Like, but Ryan's doing everything that any filmmaker would do. And he's doing it once a week to millions of people like so well and he's this goes back to our earlier thing that we talked about in passion projects ryan's done a really really great job of saying okay i know where my money's coming from and i'm not going to abandon that right he feeds his youtube channel Mm -hmm. but he's also learned how to leverage that onto the other side which Mm -hmm. is okay i need to invest money into being a filmmaker and make these films and collaborate with other filmmakers yep and then I'm just going to utilize my YouTube audience to try and actually give it some legs. Yeah. So, yeah, if I think if you're ever going to make that jump and cross over, that's what you have to do. Yeah, it's the same thing I'm going to do in commercial world, right? If I'm wanting to get into a different type of commercial, I still have to go make that to prove yeah. that to people. Yeah, that's that's the thing is like people just don't understand. I can see it and I feel like in 30 years when my age group is in charge of Hollywood, they might hire YouTubers. Hmm. But... I feel like the way Ryan's doing it is the only way he can do it because even though he has all the skills and he has the audience, like he kind of has to prove himself totally. through the films. Absolutely. Which is fine. And he's made some amazing short films. Everyone has to prove himself through the films. Like there is no way around it. Yeah. The way around it, technically, what we're talking about, the savants, essentially, is connections Yeah. or serendipity. But it's like you got to know someone at a festival Mm-hmm. You've got to have some connection some place where your film is able to get in front of the right person. Yeah. Like oftentimes that is how someone like I know for for a fact Damien Chazelle makes that jump, right? By mm-hmm. doing a short, knowing the right person to get J.K. Simmons in the short, mm-hmm. 
and the short wins what i think it was sundance shorts or whatever it was in yeah but the point is like that that's very serendipitous to like know the right person at the right place to say yes because there's thousands of films being submitted yeah and if you don't know somebody oftentimes i, I know this from my own experience i poured blood sweat and tears into a short that i'm still proud of that i thought Bones. did did well yeah mm-hmm. and but it didn't do anything in the festival world but i didn't know anybody in those situations and i've talked to other friends who had success and that was oftentimes the thing for them was like well i got it into a festival because i knew someone there and then that bred to another you know like Mm. so so with that how have you found living in la with those aspects do you think that somebody who lives in ohio who is an aspiring filmmaker and maybe has a good skill set should pick up and move with nothing here or do they build you know, be a big fish in a small pond? Do mm-hmm. they come here and be a small fish in a big pond? Like, it's more of a small fish in the ocean, really. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, well, I would say this. I don't want to speak to it on movies and TV since I'm not pursuing that right now. Plus, yeah. That's a long-term goal that I do want to sure. eventually shift over to. But it definitely applies in the world that I do work in. And I would say... Which is commercial yeah, uh, projects. Commercial music video, that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, I think you're always going to have that in the back of your mind. And then when you live here, you're always going to have the opposite in the back of your mind, which is, should I be here? <laughs> you know, is, is it worth paying this the much money? The grass is always greener. On always. The and, they, and the other reality is I think they can both be right. Mm-hmm. You just try have to, you have to try and identify which one is right for you in that moment. Yeah. So like a good example of this, my wife and I are moving back to Nashville. You know this. Yeah. Um, which that, is why we're doing this interview right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Before you move. Um, that why, was, why did you decide that? Yeah, it wasn't our intention either. We had initially thought L.A. would be a lot longer term than it has been. Um, but after a couple of years of doing what I talked about moving here for to try and like learn and navigate what mm-hmm. that path forward should look like, once I started to identify some like big boxes that I need to check off, mm-hmm. to me it became pretty obvious that I could do that a lot more easily in Nashville. It's because I ha- it's cheaper and I have the relationships to kind of bring these passion projects to life yeah because that's a big thing you can drive to atlanta (laughs) absolutely yeah yeah and it and quality of life is better obviously at that point because i'm not traveling for work all the time yeah you know or if i am it's much easier than from la to nashville and atlanta but no um i think you mentioned it earlier with the whole like the guy with the passion projects Mm -hmm. doing cars right Mm -hmm. The barrier to entry for film is a lot harder because Mm -hmm. the gear and the amount of people it takes is much larger it's much more collaborative yeah and all that to say that shouldn't discourage you right yeah you should do a small and accessible passion project first our our friend seth worley i can't believe this but almost every red giant film that he's done was done under five thousand dollars like some of those big epic amazing shorts that he did Mm -hmm. he did for like two to three thousand bucks yep it's incredible but either, either way that's still a lot of money and it is and, and and he's getting that because of the relationships that he can utilize mm-hmm. to get free gear, free locations, whatever, right? Because free talent. There's a reason that a commercial that looks the way it does costs fifty grand. Yeah. Right. So I've got a passion project right now that's narrative commercial, and, and I say narrative commercial. It's a narrative storytelling piece, but it would the idea is that oh, we want to do something that lends itself to the commercial world, right? Yeah. That an agency can look at and go, oh yeah, he really can do that sort of thing. Yeah. But you're not making a spec commercial, yeah. right? Not a throwing a fake brand at the end of it okay gotcha. but we ran for the sake of it we ran what that budget would look like through a production company of mm-hmm. like if, if this was an agency commercial and it was 50 grand okay. or a little over yeah. obviously that's ridiculous no one in their right mind has 50 grand to put into something like this yeah but 
once you start peeling back the layers of, okay, here's all the people we can get for free. Here's the locations we can get for super cheap. Here's gear we have access to. That still is going to come down and there's going to be hard costs that you have Mm -hmm. to pay. Yeah. And so that is part of it is like, I would say start small Mm -hmm. and go, Hey, I can do this for a thousand dollars. And that thousand dollars might get me a really cool camera and a really good actor friend for free. And I can use my own house and we're going to shoot it kind of more natural light. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, but sure. eventually, right, you want to stair-step that. Mm-hmm. And so once you do that and you're trying to do something at a pretty high level, mm-hmm. it just takes a lot more money and a bigger team and more people who are on board with your vision. So mm-hmm. I'd say the first thing with that is you've got to have a really strong vision and they've got to respect your work and they've got to want to be a part of what you're doing. Yeah. And two, I've found it the best thing is to find people who are looking at an opportunity to be mutually beneficial. Mm-hmm. So I'll approach a cinematographer or a friend at a production company who may be, oh, you want to do car commercials and you haven't gotten in the door yet? Well, I haven't either. So I've got an idea. I'll build it out into a treatment. We should do this. Right now you have someone else who might be willing to throw some money into it, who could own a camera to bring to it, Mm -hmm. a production company that could own a grip truck, whatever it is. Use that for their own reel. Exactly. Yeah. So that's been a big networking part of it. Interesting. What do you think people should do? Um, 19 year old you know 18 year old straight out of high school maybe a couple years in college Mm -hmm. wants to be a filmmaker wants to do commercial work yeah what do they do do they pa do they just make stuff with their friends what do you recommend both (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i mean i would say i've seen i've seen kids go the intern route at production companies Mm -hmm. and that can be hit or miss but it definitely exposes you to the real world of being on set. Mm-hmm. Yes, you will be getting coffee and you will be going to get toilet paper or whatever. You know, like it's not glorious at all. And you're not going to always be on set watching all the ins and outs, but you're around it enough to learn the language. And the more important thing is to build the relationships. Mm-hmm. I have several friends right now who are repped at a company I used to be repped at, but they were interns when I was a director there. Oh, cool. And they just built a relationship with the EP at the company and they kind of proved themselves on the side. Yeah. And then eventually because that relationship was there, the EP is like, hey, I should rep you. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is not only were they interning, but on nights and weekends they were making stuff. Yes. And then they would be like, hey, Mr. So-and-so, can you check this out? Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that's a, a valuable path that I've seen people take. Or, yeah, being a PA and getting around sets in general is valuable. Do you find Facebook groups, Twitter, things like that helpful to find those PA jobs? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, or the bigger thing is if you if you want to be a PA, whether you know a director or a DP or a production company, that's what you got to do is you got to try and connect with someone and go, hey, I just want to get on set. Just call them up? I'll be, yeah. I, Show up I'll, at the door, cold call? Yeah, literally, whatever it is, you could send a handful of those. Most people... You're offering a service at that point. Like, I will come on set and work for you for cheap. (laughs) So, yeah, get your hands dirty would be part of it. Um, But the other thing that you can't lose sight of, and I remember I was set, this is kind of one of those random moments where I was like on a flight home from a job and ended up chatting with this dude. And turns out he was an AD on Lost. And so we were just like, this is obviously, that's dating the conversation. It's been a while. Yeah. But I remember his advice. and I was like a pretty young kid at the time. I felt like probably early 20s. And he was like, you know what? If you want to be a director, don't stop directing. Mm. He's like, Cause otherwise you'll work up through the ranks of a set and you'll become an AD or you'll become whatever. And you'll like make your living doing that. And the only way to ever get out of it is to literally get out of it. Yeah. It's really hard to because transition you're to. You're seen as yeah. blank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
There's always a transition moment. And there's nothing wrong with being an AD or if you want to be a cinematographer, uh, being someone's AC. And and in fact, it's really, really beneficial to do it. Of course. I think uh, an AC, which stands for assistant camera, Mm -hmm. is that right? Uh, That's a great role if you want to be a DP. Because you're learning under another DP, basically. And usually what happens is, like for me, I actually got recommended... Uh, I wanted to hire a certain DP and he wasn't available and he said, hey, my AC is great. You should call him. Yes. Because they are buddies anyways. In you know, There are so many guys I work with <clears throat> in this industry where when I was a PA on set or mm-hmm. a DIT, which like handles, you know, all the data transfer, mm-hmm. um, there are ACs that are now like good friends of mine who I shoot with that are DPs that are killing it now. Yeah. So that is a... Definitely, you're never above that and shouldn't be afraid of doing that. Mm. But it's all to say at the same time, you have to be super passionate and strategic to make sure you are crafting your own work. When I uh, kind of made the transition from freelance kind of corporate wedding stuff to being a director in Nashville, uh, that exact thing that you just said is what I did. And it really helped because my website, my my internet accounts like i really did kind of focus on showing people i'm a director Mm -hmm. and i started getting directing work i still would shoot on the weekends to pay the bills i would still edit freelance uh but i didn't call myself an editor i didn't call myself a dp i called myself a director Mm -hmm. and uh, i started kind of eventually people saw me as a director yeah and the same as you're always going to be in that game right there's still work that i do as a director that's directorial work but I don't advertise that I do it because I'm yeah. not trying to build a business around that work. Yeah, exactly. You're never above that, and you shouldn't yeah. be above that. I hung out with, I was like with a great group of film guys here in LA the other night, mm-hmm. and I'm like sitting down chatting with this dude, and we're having like that kind of this part of the conversation of like, yeah. what do you do? He's like, oh, I'm a filmmaker, but I literally will do whatever for money. <laughs> and then like we're joking about some of that, and I'm like walking away from that night talking to another buddy. He's like, oh yeah, yeah. Do you know that guy? Yeah, he won Sundance a couple years ago with this, and oh, wow. he was signed with this massive production. And so like. The point is, no matter where he is, yes, it never stops. You've got to be hungry and you've got to be humble. You've got to be willing to like, hey, I just need to pay my rent. And hey, I'm not working right now and I can say yes to that. Anything in this industry, you're not entitled to be a filmmaker. Uh, And you can have a really great run and then still have a really rough patch. mm -hmm. Or you can be in the middle of a rough patch and know that you still have a great run in front of you. Yeah. So I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been a lot of fun. I actually got to know you a little bit more, which Mm -hmm. is really crazy because you were in my wedding and I felt like I already (laughs) knew you. (laughs) But um, I just want to, again, kind of wrap everything up into into one thing. For anybody who's listening who wants to to do what you're doing – you know, should they be, what are some, some things that they really, really need to just be focused on right now? I know we've talked a lot about this already, but like, what are some action plans for today? Like, yeah, go buy a camera, go into debt. No, I, obviously my encouragement would be, um, if you know specifically what you want to do, do you want to be a director? Do you want to be a DP or whatever? Um, I think that's helpful. And if you don't know that, you should try and find that out quickly by experimenting exactly and by getting on set and learning those roles and whatever that looks like uh and the biggest thing i would say is don't second guess everything like it doesn't have to be a perfect opportunity it just needs to be an opportunity like i have a weird path that stair stepped from weddings to a small production company to another small production company to getting repped by a company getting repped by a different company you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah. i've moved since then yeah and and I'm still trying to figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. So the point is, 
you could analyze all those and should I do it? Should I not? And it's like, I would say the earlier you're starting, the less you should really think it through and overanalyze that. Like Mm -hmm. the most valuable thing that I can look at right now is you can navigate the business all you want, but it doesn't matter if you don't have the skill set. And so you and I specifically went through this Mm -hmm. in the wedding world. We built a skill set. And then I applied that to this tiny production company Mm -hmm. with hardly any money, Mm -hmm. but I looked at it as an opportunity and I spent two years where I got to go to different countries and shoot and Mm -hmm. learn different programs and it was not glorious and it's not work that I'm going to show anybody, but it, it definitely built a really solid foundation. So that would be the biggest thing is like you hear about it, the joke with writers where it's like, oh, I'm a writer. What have you written? Oh, well, like I'm kind of working. No, it's like if you want to be a writer, you need to write stuff. Yeah. And I would say that if you want to be a storyteller, if you want to be a director, if you want to be a DP, you need to be doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's and it may be stuff that's terrible for the first couple of years, yeah. and that's fine. You could shoot on your iPhone and make a short film. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. And you should be proud of it in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say that's the other thing is the Ira Glass taste I love that thing. video. It's so video. Like, mm-hmm. link it in the podcast or whatever because yeah. it is – perfectly on point with this uh, yeah just to have context there's a video if you just go on uh google just search ira glass is it i think it's taste taste yeah Yeah. and it's a segment from a podcast interview that he did Mm -hmm. but this person made this beautiful uh vimeo video yeah so definitely check it out yeah he basically talks about the idea that earlier on your taste is not like you're not going to be able to get your work up to your taste Uh, maybe you call the gap. Yeah, it might be called the gap. That's what it's about, right? It's the gap between what you see in your head and what you're actually able to create. Yeah, and it's something that never goes away. I still have this right now, right? I still have aspirations going into a project that I may not deliver to that level, yeah. but I'm closing the gap every year. Yeah, that's the goal, right? Yeah. So, in the early years, if you're early on in this, just know that that gap is big, and that's not a bad thing. You yeah. just got to dive in. And if you're like midway through, yeah, I think then the next. The, the key thing for you to do is to be strategic and, and really analyze, okay, w- what's missing in the gap right now? Mm-hmm. How can I take this up a level? Mm-hmm. And take, the, take your own initiative to do it. One of the things I did this year was like I revamped my treatments again mm-hmm. because I had friends who were at these massive production companies. I would talk to them about their treatments. And it was on a whole nother level. Some of these were like 50 and 60 page treatments. And I was like, dear God, what, do I, <laughs> what does this look like? So I, I just swallowed my pride and asked and sat down with people and they sent me treatments and we walked mm-hmm. through stuff. And then I took a weekend on a project where I was like, I don't know if I'm like, this project's not worth a 35 page treatment, Yeah. but I applied it to it because I just wanted to build the skill set. The practice. Yeah. Exactly. So you're never above that part of it. Yeah. Where, uh, by the way, if, if somebody who has never seen a treatment before, is there a, a resource or is there anywhere that they can see treatments? I know that. I've seen a couple like on nofilmschool.com. Th- yeah, I think like Film that. Supply did a thing at one point in time. I don't know if that's still up, but I feel like they did an interview with Diego Contreras about his treatments because they're pretty legendary. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's It's kind of an industry behind-the-scenes kind of thing. And it's a little bit of it's your own secret sauce, right? Like yeah. that's, every director's got their own thing that they do. And I, the bigger it gets, the more elaborate these treatments get. And mm-hmm. that's, a whole, that's a whole world. <laughs> but... Uh, I would go to Film Supply because I feel like there might be some treatment resources on there. And if not, the other thing is, yeah, sitting down with other directors and saying, can you show me a treatment? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What am I supposed to do? (laughs) (laughs) Are there any directors or filmmakers that you think anybody uh, who's starting out should be looking at, learning from? 
maybe some underground directors that you know of that you're fans of their work it just depends um give me a list of just the top like you can i know you're a big fincher fan yeah so who are some of your favorite directors and filmmakers for sure yeah i I put fincher really really high up on that list for a ton of reasons nolan goes up on that list uh denis villeneuve is one of my favorites and um i would say one of the things that you should do is look at somebody's body of work Mm -hmm. go through and watch all their films yeah um because there's a lot to learn about that have you ever seen bottle rocket by wes anderson it's crazy like to see the progression of his skill set and how much better it's gotten. I mean, it's it's a good movie on its own right, but mm-hmm. it it definitely had like such an indie feel feel to it. Well, and that I would say this is a, a really good like final punch mm-hmm. is, and this is something that I think took me a long time to wrap my head around as a just as a person and as a director. Those two things are completely intertwined who you are as a person and who you are as a filmmaker. Mm. And in this day and age, you're seeing a lot of, you're seeing a lot of response to people making films that have a lot to say, that a lot of meaning. Mm. Um, and our society is like kind of grabbing onto that because we are also like in the midst of superhero overload yeah. where there's nothing to say. And it's, yeah. you know what I mean? So I just watched Endgame and I walked out of it thoroughly entertained in the same way that I go on a roller coaster and mm-hmm. I'm thoroughly entertained. But I told my wife, Laura, I was like, I was very fulfilled in the fact that I was entertained, but I felt like really empty after it was over because it was like, there was no depth to that. I felt like I just watched some people stand in front of a green screen for two hours. Yeah, I, I went and saw <laughs> it the other night too. I mean, and there's there's beautiful little emotional things that happen and, and yeah. that whatnot that you can pull from it and that the filmmakers wrote into it. Mm-hmm. But it's totally different than like watching a film like Moonlight or yeah, something, or right? That's like, playbook yeah, that's like a little slice of life. So I think the same thing though applies to all of, all of us as filmmakers on whatever scale we're on. So yeah. even me right now in commercials, it's about figuring out what do I want to say? And I didn't do that soon enough. Mm. I think... Find your voice. Yeah, it's that's exactly the verbiage. You hear that. And that really, I think what that means to me is like, what do you identify with in terms of the type of content that makes you feel alive and mm-hmm. that you go, oh, like, I have the skill set for that naturally. Like, mm-hmm. I want to lean into that. And yeah. you do some of those projects and you're like, and it, you really connect with it and it resonates. Yeah. Um, I think it's easy in, in the early on period where I was saying, you just need to get your hands on projects. Yeah, and experiment. Super valuable. Mm-hmm. But at some point in time, if you're not careful, and this is what happened to me, I feel like I looked up one day and I was doing a ton a huge variety of projects this type of music video country to pop to rock to branded content to a documentary to mm-hmm. a whatever right like there wasn't anything cohesive to it mm-hmm. it was just me trying to make as much stuff and make it as good as possible yeah and so that's kind of like building a horizontal portfolio which mm-hmm. early on is super important you got but bills yeah but i've learned now that it's more about depth it's finding that niche and going, hey, if I really love so this vertical, kind of, uh, yeah, it is. It's about going vertical and saying, look, I did two, three, four, five of these things now that share in the same sort of similarities. That's the point in time in which people go, oh, wow, that dude or that girl is really, really gifted at this type of storytelling. Yeah. And I think you can't really do that until you find a little bit of who you are yeah. and where you go dang it that's what i love to do i found that with myself and uh i don't think i've ever told you this but because you're a couple years ahead of me i'm slightly younger than you i'm 28 uh i looked up to you as a director and i started kind of wanting to do your tone which was the 
very uh, moody and beautiful cinematic stuff. And I just could never, I could never nail it. Like, you could always nail it. Uh, and then I met a guy named Seth Worley, and I saw what he was doing. I said, oh, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And I started experimenting with comedy and playing around with the awkwardness and the, the like, crappy green screen and, like, throwing a crappy filter on it to make it look weird and retro. And I fell in love with that style, and I took stuff from him, and I took stuff from you, and I took stuff from other people. And then I was able to decide that okay if like i want to do a matt underwood piece i'll just hire matt underwood <laughs> like that's it yeah and i can't i can't just do it i don't have the swagger to do that kind of sexy uh footage the way that you can you know i think that's a big part of it is learning your strengths and being and self-aware too being very self-aware and and like yeah constantly going back and analyzing that if you want to close the gap that's what it comes down to at the end of the day is going okay let me look at my work and, and let me look at like how do i feel as a person in the midst of all of this and not yeah. just get lost in the rat race yeah um you, there's trends there's always trends and mm-hmm. people try to follow those trends and Back when we started out, it was the Alexa with zero color grading, and it was like oh, super yeah. flat. Remember that? It's like people were like delivering projects in log. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were like it seemed like they essentially added a tiny bit of saturation to a log image yep. because at the time it was like new yeah. to shoot in log, you know, or whatever. Yeah, it's funny. So don't follow the trends. <laughs> Be aware of the trends, right? You you mentioned like I'm going to pull some of Seth, I'm going to pull some of Matt, I'm going to do this. That's the whole Austin Kleon book. If you've read it, steal like an artist, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what you're going to do at <laughs> the end of the day. For stealing Matt. <laughs> no, you should be stealing because I'm the same thing. I'm stealing from directors that I look up to. Yeah. Um, at some point in time, though, it needs to become your own thing, exactly. and it's going to become your own thing when you actually have something mm. to say. Yeah. Versus like I just want to explore cool images. That's a good moment, but. At some yeah. point, it's got to become more than that. It's got to become about what's the heart of this thing that I'm trying to do. Yeah. If you could have dinner with somebody dead or alive, who would it be? That's a great question. It's a really nerdy question, but who would it be? Who would you want to, like, gleam from? And it could be anybody that's, you know, still alive today. But Yeah. I don't have a, an easy answer other than I would say Fincher. Yeah. I think. What would you ask him? Oh, I've already I've watched so much Fincher behind the scenes and podcasts <laughs> and whatnot that that's a great question. Um, I think I would probably ask him to like I would tell tell him where I'm at and say, you know, from being 25 steps ahead of me on the ladder, what does this look like? And yeah. this path that I'm doing, what am I not seeing? Right? I I would ask someone to help me with my blind spots and yeah. like give me advice on like what I should be doing differently or more of or less of. Do you think people should go to film school or not? It's a blanket statement, but... Totally. Um, I don't see the value in it, but I didn't go. So I can only speak to so much of it. But I would say, for my friends who did go, some of them turned out really great, and they definitely came away with opportunities and relationships to make projects. And debt. And debt, right. So you got to... It depends. Like, if if money is not an issue and you can get a scholarship or your parents can afford that for you, then, like, wow, that's great. You're blessed. You should take that opportunity. Um but don't feel like if you can't go or or that you have to go, it's the only way in because it's not. Yeah, definitely. Well, how can people find you on the internet? Oh, the internets. Um, yeah. Website is matthewunderwood.tv. And, and it's spelled just like your Underwood's last name. It is. Good old Carrie. Um, <laughs> and it, that was like the biggest thing growing up was like, oh my gosh, you related to Carrie? Yeah. And then 
good old Fincher came in and said, nope, I'm going to give you Frank Underwood from House of Cards. Oh, yeah. And so then true. it like shifted and I started being in airports and people were like, Underwood, huh? Yeah. Um, and now it's like, nah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, that guy. Way to go, Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Um, and so then MatthewUnderwood.tv. Yeah. And all my socials and stuff are on there, but it's MJ cool. Underwood, except um, the O's are zeros and wood. So nice. It's easier to try just go to my website and click on the Instagram yeah, the little icon. MatthewUnderwood.tv. Thank you so much, Matt, for coming on and just hanging out. It was a lot of fun. Hey, man. Likewise. Thanks for the ask. I really hope you guys enjoyed my interview with Matthew Underwood. I sure did. It was a blast catching up with an old friend like this. If you're a fan of the show, please consider sharing this episode with somebody that you think would really like it. Word of mouth is really the best way for us to grow this podcast and to grow this audience. So if you want to help us out, please consider sharing it. It means the world to us. Next week, we have Ken Bolito on the podcast, who's the creative director behind Austin Evans' YouTube channel. And because I'm a YouTuber myself, I really enjoy talking to another YouTuber who's way, way ahead of where I am. So definitely make sure that you're subscribed to the Golden Hour podcast to catch my interview with Ken next week. Once again, I'm your host, Dave Mays. This is the Golden Hour podcast. We'll see you next week.